How old is your son? Eight. Such a funny guy. <laughs> he is a funny guy. She's a 45-year-old woman originally from Iran. Uh, her husband's Hamid. Um, she was a midwife. Wow. In the context of talking about being a midwife, she talked a lot about natural death and natural birth and sort of linking those two things. I also wonder just about a hospice referral. I mean, I think it may be hard for them because of where they are mentally. I had some conversation with her and her mother exactly about that, and mother came outside the room afterwards with me and said, basically, hospice means death. We're not, do not talk about it with her. I think your insight was a good one, Dina. I think it's healthy people who think about how they want to die and sick people who think about how they want to live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's easy to All that fantasize about <laughs> the beach and the mountains. And, and then you get sick and it's like, I just want to live. Nice to meet you. I'm the doctor on the palliative care team, Steve Hanlon. Have you heard of palliative care before? Sure. We have palliative care up at home. Uh -huh. Well, can I ask you what you understand palliative care to be? Um, sort of end-of-life care. Yeah, but we think of palliative care as helping people live as well as possible for as long as possible. We work together. It's doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains focused on not just the disease, but the whole person to really help people with their symptoms, making sure they um, have information they need to make good decisions about their care, support for the patient and family, emotional, psychological, spiritual support. Mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of in a spot where we're not really uh, ready for hospice, I, I don't think, anyway, and I think she thinks the same thing. When you say not ready, tell me what your thoughts are. What are your thoughts? Well, to me, I, I guess part of that is uh, like very, very end of life. Oh. Hospice has a label of, oh, that's it, kiss it, right. goodbye. But this is more help you transition. Totally. I've been a nurse for 40 years. Patients come into the hospital and die, and that's not how I wanted to do it. So I wanted to stay home. As long as I've been a pastor, there have been conversations about how relevant is the church? How do we make the church relevant? How do we keep the church relevant? How do we take a religion that originated in the Middle East, completely different cultural context, how do we take scripture that's thousands of years old and make it relevant to life in the middle of America in the 21st century? When it comes to the topic we're gonna to be exploring together today, I don't think it's very difficult at all to make the church relevant. When we start talking about death, facing our own death or the death of someone we love, all of a sudden faith, all of a sudden scripture becomes very relevant. We're in a message series uh, called Losing My Bad Religion, and we're working our way through uh, a letter that's a book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, a letter Paul writes to a church in Corinth. We've been waking our way through it. Today we get to chapter 15, and in chapter 15, Paul spends a lot of time talking about death but also talking about resurrection. And listen carefully to what he says. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. I passed on to you what was most important. The first 14 chapters, he's talking about really important stuff. 
talking about the centrality of the message of the cross to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and how do we use those, how do we apply those to work together to be the church, what role does love have to play in all of that, that whole process. Now he gets to chapter 15 and he's ready to talk to us all those important things. Now let me tell you what is the most important thing of all. And let's read it together. We'll put it up on the screen. Start with the word Christ. Read it out loud with me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Paul says this is the most important thing. He goes on to list all of the people that the resurrected Jesus appeared to as proof or as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And it's not like he's saying all the other stuff that we've been talking about is unimportant. It's all still very important. What he's saying is the resurrection is the most important thing. If the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection is fake news, if it's a lie, if, if it's a fraud, if it's a hoax, if it never actually happened, Jesus never was raised from death to life, then nothing else matters. He goes on in chapter 15 to say, your faith is useless, you're still guilty of your sins if the resurrection never happened. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Now, you heard it just a few minutes ago, we had a couple of baptisms and Part of the baptism ritual that we do here at Hope, we ask you to stand and let's recite the Apostles' Creed. Let's remind ourselves what it is we believe as the church, as, as Christians. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And in the section on what do we believe about the Holy Spirit, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. It's a very specific phrase. It's not just kind of resurrection in general, not exactly sure what that means, but there's something, we're resurrected into something, who knows what. No, we believe in the resurrection of the body. It's a reminder to us Christianity is an embodied faith. Christianity is an embodied faith. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, God who became human, lived life in a human body. When Jesus died and was buried and was raised on the third day, he was raised in a resurrected human body. And this resurrected body has some similarities uh, to his body before the resurrection, but there are some things that are different, some things that are unfamiliar about Jesus' resurrected body that will teach us something about our resurrected body. So, for example, Jesus' resurrected body still has the nail holes in his hands and in his feet, something that happened before he was resurrected. After the resurrection, he has meals. He eats with his disciples, which I don't know about you. That's good news to me. We still get to eat after the resurrection. I love that. And then there are some things that were different. Some of his closest friends, the people that knew Jesus best, when they initially encounter him in his resurrected body, they do not recognize him. So there's something a little bit unfamiliar and different about our resurrected bodies as well. And Jesus' resurrected body is able to go through walls. Disciples are huddled together in an upper room, scared to death. What if the Romans and, and the Jewish authorities come after us and do to us what they've done to Jesus? And so they're in that room and everything is locked and Jesus doesn't knock. Nobody opens the door and suddenly he appears in that room with them. So we believe in the resurrection of the body, but exactly what that means, exactly what that looks like, we're not really sure. There's something unknown and mysterious about that. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, if you've been around church world for a while, 
even though we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, if you listen, and you don't have to even listen very carefully or very closely, sometimes it's just right out there, it's almost like, do we actually believe in the resurrection of the body or not? It's almost like we believe in a disembodied resurrection. When we talk about salvation, a lot of times we'll add on to it and we'll say, we believe in the salvation of our souls. So, like, the resurrection is going to be this thing that separates our body from our soul. Our bodies will die, but our soul is eternal, and it'll go on and on and on forever, and that's what we'll live in heaven. But there's this separation there. That's bad religion. That's not what uh, Christianity teaches. It's not what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible talks about this integrated kind of reality. And, And there's a heresy that's existed from the very beginning in the church, and it's a temptation for us to fall in it today, a dualism that kind of separates the material world, the physical world, uh, the created order, that's bad, the spiritual world is good, and so when we die, we want to escape the bad physical world, and our souls go to heaven, and that makes everything better. Again, that's bad religion, and it leads to bad thoughts about our bodies, and it plays out in all sorts of ways. One of the ways it plays out is as we get closer and closer to our physical death, we get very uncomfortable with what's going on in our bodies. If you're new to hope, and if you're new to hope, you're my hero. Like, why did you come to hope today? Anyway, uh, if you're new to hope, one of the things I would want you to know about me is I love movies. And so this weekend is one of the highlight weekends of the year for me because it's Oscar weekend. I know for a lot of people, it's roll your eyes and nobody goes and sees those crazy movies anyway. But like, I love movies. And part of the reason I love movies is because Jesus loved stories. One of the primary ways that Jesus would teach people is through the use of parables. He would tell stories that connects everyday regular life with the life of faith. And so uh, when I go to movies, God often does that kind of thing to me, makes connections between the story of the movie and the story of my life or the, the story of faith. It's not a replacement for scripture, but because I'm in God's word, uh, engaging God's word on a regular basis, God speaks to me through the stories of movies. And so uh, we're going to have an Oscar party tonight, and we're going to have Oscar-themed foods. What were the foods that they were eating in the movies that get nominated? And we'll make that sort of stuff, and we'll print out the ballot, and we'll guess, because most of the uh, categories are so obscure, it's like, I have no idea. Sound mixing? What is that? But anyway, uh, we're going to have a blast. And for the last several years, my friend Dan, who lives in Portland, Oregon, We've gotten together for a week in January or February to watch every movie nominated for Best Picture. He was here a, a couple of weeks ago, and we did that. And when I preach on Oscar weekend, I like to show clips from uh, one of the Oscar-nominated movies that, that we saw. So we're going to do that today, but it's n- not any of the movies nominated for Best Picture. Uh, two weeks ago, we went over to Omaha and spent the day there. Dan and my two teenage daughters, Hadley and Kylie and I, And we watched 15 films nominated in the category of Oscar shorts. So Oscar shorts, there's uh, documentary shorts, animated shorts, and live action shorts. They're five minutes long to 40 minutes long. Some of them are not full length feature films. But they were incredible and devastating and fascinating and beautiful all at the same time. Uh, The clip we watched at the beginning of the message is from a film called Endgame. Uh, nominated for the Oscar in Best Documentary Short. Uh, it's on Netflix. If you want to go home this afternoon and have a little lighthearted watch, uh, here's the <laughs> description on Netflix. Facing an inevitable outcome, 
Terminally ill patients meet extraordinary medical practitioners seeking to change our approach to life and death. One of the main characters is this guy, Dr. B.J. Miller, runs a hospice center in the San Francisco area. Here's a guy who goes to med school, becomes an MD, and then he uses his medical knowledge not to help people heal and um, become well from illness or disease or injury. Instead, he uses his medical knowledge to help people face death with dignity. Take a look. I did brush up against death myself. Sophomore year of college, Princeton University, screwing around on a commuter train with some friends. Just parked, not moving. Just didn't, we didn't think we were doing anything that daring. Uh, but I had, a, I had a metal watch on, and when I climbed up on top of the train, it was one of those trains that the wires run overhead, like the buses in San Francisco, for example. And when I stood up on the train, I, I was close enough to the what's called the panograph, the metal thing that uh, attaches the train to the wires. And electricity arced to my watch, entered the arm and blew down and out my feet. So uh, that, was, that was that. It was, you know, spontaneous, immediate, crazy experience. Uh, the amputations were surgical in the coming days and weeks. But yeah, so I lost both legs below the knee and my left arm below the elbow. Um, I was 19. Two people can have very much the same circumstance, same disease perhaps, and one person starts taking it in stride and the other person is just can't accommodate the illness, can't accommodate the diagnosis. I'll say in my own experience, you know, it took me several years before I stopped comparing my new body to the old body. But when I did stop comparing, when I really, when this became the whole me, not me missing stuff, I stopped suffering. My identity had, had accommodated the facts of my life. It's such an important idea that he's talking about there at the end. We suffer when we are not whole. We suffer when we are not whole. And one of the ways to think about Christianity, what, what's this faith all about? Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to make us whole. And I think a lot of times, we're, well, Jesus came to make us holy, H-O-L-Y. I'd like you to consider the idea, one of the reasons Jesus came was to make us holy human. W-H-O-L-E. Jesus came to make us holy human. Here's the way uh, John one Jesus' disciples begins his story, a gospel, about the life of Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, through the Word. Nothing was created except through Him, through the Word. Part of what John is saying here is God embodies creation. Uh, John He's taking this idea, word, the Greek word behind it is logos. It's this sort of philosophical, intellectual idea that people in Jesus' day and John's day had. How does life work? Uh, what's the lens through which I make sense of my life, the lens through which I make sense of the world? And it was this idea called the logos. And so John says, 
Think of that as Jesus. Jesus is the lens through which we make sense of our life and make sense of the world. And one of the Greek words for world is cosmos. A couple chapters later, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it's literally for God so loved the cosmos, cosmic creation, all of creation, the whole world. Old Testament writers use different language when talking about this. Uh, They use the language of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the whole world. And of course, the world does not remain whole. And our lives do not remain whole. Come broken, fragmented, fractured, uh, distorted, disintegrated. And so a big part of the work of Jesus is putting everything back together again. Making the cosmos, the whole world, whole again. Making our lives whole again. Here's uh, when Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's teaching against bad religion, that bad religion that would say it's all separate, it's all separate. Jesus is like, no, it's, it's all one, it's all whole. Let's put it all back together again the way God originally intended. Uh, Paul talks about it a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 21. We'll put it up on the screen. And let's read this out loud together. Go Next slide. There you go. Read this with me. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. So Paul goes on to call Jesus the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. First Adam came and had the opportunity to kind of get everything right, and the first Adam messed everything up. We spend a lot of time blaming Adam, don't we? But if you think about it, the Hebrew word for the man is Adam, Adam. So we're really talking about humanity, mankind, not just an individual person, but all of us. If Adam hadn't done it, one of you would have, or I would have. Um, We would have messed up. So here comes Jesus, the second Adam, the opportunity to get things right, to show us the best of what humanity can be, to show us how to become wholly human. And so when you think of sort of fancy church words like, I don't know, salvation, redemption, resurrection, a big part of what they're pointing to is this idea of God putting everything back together again the way God originally designed and intended things to be. And that work, that process is ongoing. Think of the song uh, Kyle and the band sang for us for the offering. It included the lyrics, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. Jesus, the holy human one, son of God and son of man, is showing us how to be holy human, putting the broken pieces back together again, resurrecting us, and one day that resurrection will be complete. I don't know about you, I love the idea of resurrection. I do not like the idea that I have to die first in order to be resurrected. Another scene from this film, Endgame. Uh, Dr. Miller's having a conversation with a woman who is terminal and facing some important decisions. And they've had, this isn't the first conversation they've had, they've had previous conversations, and in the previous conversations, he gives her an assignment. Take a look. Nice shoes. Uh, not yet. 
let's talk about that shortness of breath. But the bigger reason to be here today is really to continue to talk through this crazy thing called death. Yeah, you gave me an assignment. Yeah. You told me to make friends with death. Yeah. I have failed the assignment. Yeah, okay. Failed. Okay. I love to live. Yeah. I am not accepting this. Friends with death may be pretty tough, but maybe what I more meant would have been to have some sort of relationship with with it, with okay. this subject. Okay. It doesn't need to be friendly at all, just so that it's uh, less scary than this unknown thing in the closet that we never look at, never see, never touch. You know, I think the scary part is the unknown mm -hmm. and the lack of control. Yeah. Is the unknown what it's going to feel like to actually be dying or what it's going to be like to be dead? Both. Because I don't think that, from where I said, I'm not sure that we can know what it like, what it's like to be dead no. from here. You tell me if you feel otherwise. But I, so, so the, given that that's not possible, next up would be, okay, if we can't change that, well, maybe we can get used to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So maybe in terms of the being dead part, maybe that's our goal is to kind of get used to this idea of being able to hold this idea of not knowing, holding the mystery. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That I think is a better, it's a more realistic goal than solving that mystery. Yeah. Um, so that, does and that also maybe you? trusting a little bit. It could be terrible, but it could be wonderful. This part of my life is wonderful. Have a relationship with death, he says, so that it doesn't remain this scary thing like a, a monster hiding in the closet. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea, curiosity is the antidote to fear. That when we have scary things in our lives, if we face it with curiosity, all of a sudden it starts to dissipate the power of that fear a little bit more. I think that's what he's talking about there. I wonder what kind of a relationship you have with death. And I'm guessing most of us, if we're honest, would say, I don't have any relationship with that. I don't want to have a relationship with that. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. Most of us are so uncomfortable with death, we don't even use the word. People in our lives who have died, but we don't say they've died, they passed away five years ago. They, I don't know, we lost them ten years ago. But I'm going to die. You're going to die. Sad, it's awful, it's scary. And... Bad religion teaches that if you believe in the resurrection of the body, you don't have to be sad or scared when it comes to death. That's not what Scripture teaches us. That's not what the story of Scripture points us to. Think about Jesus. Good friend of his, Lazarus, has died, and Jesus goes there, and Jesus wept because death is sad, even for people who believe in the resurrection of the body. Jesus, when he's facing his own death in the garden, the night that he is arrested before he's crucified, he is in such agony. It feels He's praying for God to do anything else other than me having to die the kind of death that I'm about to die. So what the Bible teaches us, what Scripture teaches us about what does it mean to be people who believe in the resurrection of the body is we grieve, it's sad, but we grieve not as people who have no hope. We grieve as people who do have hope, hope in the resurrection of the body. It's a mysterious hope, but it's a powerful hope. Jesus kind of embodies that hope. Remember what Jesus says? I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection 
and the life, Jesus says. And part of what that means in this mysterious hope of the resurrection, the resurrection of the body gives us hope for after we die, but it also gives us hope for before we die. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's how the Bible begins, Genesis 1.1. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this vision that God gives to the apostle John, the same John who wrote the gospel of John. And part of the vision, the second to last chapter of the Bible begins this way, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. It's a vision of resurrection. Resurrection of the human body, yes, absolutely, but also resurrection of the heavens and the earth. Resurrection of the cosmos, resurrection of the whole world. It's like the vision that God is giving to John is here's where everything is going. The creative work that God did in the beginning, the work that gets broken and distorted and fractured, God's at work resurrecting all of it, all of creation, including humanity. And Paul will talk about this in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul will talk about how all of creation is groaning currently, groaning as though it's going through labor pains. What do labor pains lead to? New birth, new life. All of creation right now, Paul says, is groaning. And he says this in Romans 8, 21, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children. So we believe in the resurrection of the body, God's children, bodily resurrection, but also all creation is looking forward to the day when it will be resurrected. It'll join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So everything, the, the whole world, the cosmos, the heavens and the earth is moving towards new life, resurrection. This is what God is up to from cover to cover uh, in the Bible. This has implications for how we live our life today. You've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. We preach message series around here every once in a while on the seven deadly sins. Did you know the church also has something called the seven corporal acts of mercy? We're talking about the resurrection of the body today, that the body is such an important part of Christianity. Christianity is an embodied faith that God takes on a human body, lives, dies, is resurrected in a human body. That's how important the body is. Uh, the New Testament writers, one of the primary metaphors they have for the church, they refer to the church over and over again, the body of Christ. Corpus Christi in Latin. Corpus, Latin word for body. The seven corporal, seven bodily acts of mercy. Clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned, bury the dead, give drink to the thirsty, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless. Now, of course, there's more than seven ways that we can uh, show acts of mercy to people in this world, but the church has kind of come up with these why does the body of Christ engage in this kind of activity, seven bodily acts of mercy? It's because we believe in the bodily re resurrection. And so as we do this, we embody our faith and we participate with God in what God is doing, putting the whole thing back together again, putting the whole thing back together again. Uh, go back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden, there's a river of life that flows through that. There's a tree of life but in, in the middle of that garden as well. This water uh, that we see in the scripture from cover to cover, it is a powerful metaphor, image of you know, life-giving power. Water is this life-giving power in the Bible. And a biblical scholar named Ched Myers talks about it. He says, water in the Bible, water is a symbol of justice. Most substantial when fluid, it flows downward. 
seeking the level, a poignant metaphor of divine concern for the lowest. Whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do for me, Jesus says. That's how you embody the faith, how you live out what God is doing, what God is ultimately going to do with the resurrection. You keep doing stuff that puts the creation back together, that puts broken lives back together. Many of you are here at worship today because the body of Christ has done that for you. You've experienced those times in your lives when you felt so broken that you wondered if you were lovable. You were wondered if you could even deserve God's love. And the church, the body of Christ, came alongside you and carried you in your burden and lifted you up out of the miry clay. And you were reminded, it was a picture to you, that God actually does love you. It's powerful, powerful stuff when we embody our faith. Uh, again, the Bible begins with the river of life and a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It ends with a river of life and a tree of life in the city of heaven. Last chapter of the Bible begins this way. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. From front to end, beginning to end in the Bible, this is what God is doing healing what is broken in this world and in our lives. And then Jesus comes along, God embodying the human body, humanity, and Jesus invites us to follow him. What does he say? Follow me, be my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, what does it look like? Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And part of what Jesus is saying there is for disciples, for people who are serious about faith, following after Jesus, life is every day death and resurrection. What am I going to die to today? Die to my old way of life, my selfish way of life, be resurrected into the Jesus way of life. Day after day after day, year after year after year, it's what Christianity is all about. Death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. If we live that way, for years, for decades as followers of Jesus, by the time we face our physical death, I think that will have changed our mindset. We'll have a completely different perspective around death because all of the previous deaths and resurrections will have led to something new, something good, something better. Maybe our physical death will lead to something new and something better as well. So I'm watching that movie, Endgame, sitting next to my buddy Dan. Uh, this April, uh, Good Friday, will mark 10 years since his wife, Signe, died. For over a decade before that, Signe had an inoperable brain tumor. And so Dan is the person in my life who has lived with and thought about death more than anyone else. And we're sitting in the theater watching this movie that's asking us to think about death and think about dying. And the film ends and uh, Dan goes, well, I haven't cried that hard in a long time. And I said, you know, the next time I preach, I have to preach on 1 Corinthians 15 and death and resurrection. And I think I'm going to show clips from this, this film. And he goes, oh, I've got a clip that you should show. And so I want to end the message today with a little over a three-minute video that my friend Dan played for me. It's called The Coffin Maker. Take a look.
The first coffin I ever built was for my uh, my child when my wife had a miscarriage. It took me a while to figure out how to make the panels wide and make them pretty. It's such a personal thing to have your hands on there and to really be working with it. Coffin making seems to have really begun with furniture makers. Metal is a pretty recent innovation, and apparently now we use enough metal every year in our coffins to rebuild the Golden Gate Bridge buried in the ground. To build an entire casket takes me about 25 hours. Mostly what I do is sand. I feel like I sand and I sand and I sand. I never feel like it's finished, but then I guess that's kind of a fit thing because that's probably how we feel at the end of our lives too. I think one of the most important aspects of the coffin is that it can be carried. And I think we're meant to carry each other. And I think carrying someone you love and committing them is very important for us. And when we deal with death, we want to know that we have played a part and that we have shouldered our burden. So if we make it too convenient, then we're depriving ourselves of a chance to get stronger so that we can carry on. When I'm out here by myself early in the morning or in the middle of the night or something like that, I, I can get a sense of how work is love made visible. You know, the Benedictine monks say, you know, work and pray. And I guess those things kind of bleed together for me. So it's not that I have some words in my head. It's more just a state of love and becoming a small part of a bigger picture that I don't fully understand. I'm building something for someone that people tend to think is a destination. People think that the grave is the end. And I'm trying to illuminate that, no, it's a doorway. Let's stand together. And would you pray with me? Uh, so, Lord, in a room like this, there's all kinds of differing relationships with death and people who are far too familiar, far too acquainted with death. And so we just come to you uh, in the mystery of it all and confess that we don't quite know what to do with it. We don't quite know how to make sense of it. We don't quite know how to be faithful knowing that death is a part of this life. And so we thank you for Jesus and we ask that you would give us the faith to trust him when he says he's the resurrection and the life. We pray that you'd give us the faith to believe that the resurrection really happened. And that because it happened for Jesus, it can happen for us as well. Uh, we need your help, and so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.